Powered by MPB, this is Chalkboard Chat, an MPB education podcast, hosted by Jermaine Flood and Tara Wren. To hear this episode and more, visit education.mpbonline.org or download the MPB public media app to listen on your iPhone or Android device. I'm Jermaine Flood, and you're tuned into Chalkboard Chat, an MPB education podcast. Class is now in session. On this episode, I'll be chatting with Dr. Nathan Oakley, Chief Academic Officer with the Mississippi Department of Education about COVID learning loss as it relates to Mississippi Department of Education's request for one-year forgiveness due to the pandemic and the changes that were made and how those look to the end-of-the-year assessments. I'll also sit down with Dr. Esther Wojcicki. She is an American journalist, educator, and vice chair of the Creating Commons Advisory Council. Council, as well as Dr. Joseph Atman. He is executive director of Middle Tree Education Center in Claremont, California. We'll be discussing with them COVID learning loss, what that is, what that looks like, and how you can combat it at home and its similarities to summer learning loss. So we'll get into all of that right here on Chalkboard Chat. But right now, I want to introduce Dr. Nathan Oakley, Chief Academic Officer with the Mississippi Department of Education. Welcome to the chat, Dr. Oakley. Thanks so much, Jermaine. It's good to be with you. It's good to be with you, too. And I'm just going to go ahead and let my listeners know I will be calling Dr. Oakley Nathan. (laughs) I am am quite good with that. (laughs) For this show. So, Nathan, welcome to Chalkboard Chat. I am so glad I am able to sit down with you. Now, I just want to get into a little bit of what Dr. Carrie Wright, State Superintendent of Education, sent out recommending waiving the passing requirements for statewide third grade reading in high school end of course assessments for the 2020-2021 school year and the recommendation was included in a presentation to the Mississippi Senate Education Committee and Dr. Carrie Wright said and I quote I think this year is a year of grace I understand that COVID-19 has disrupted teaching and learning this school year and we want to make sure we support teachers administrators and students as much as possible. Now, state assessments will take place as scheduled this year to measure statewide student progress, assess the impact of COVID-19 disruptions on learning, and meet U.S. Department of Education requirements. Now, Dr. Nathan Oakley, in your position as Chief Academic Officer with the Mississippi Department of Education, what is your main job function there with them? The Office of Academic Education provides a lot of policy work, a lot of standards development, a lot of professional development and support for teachers across the state, across elementary ed, secondary education, career technical ed, special education, and then we work closely with schools that are identified for school improvement. So we're a a resource for teachers and for districts across the state through the provision of technical assistance and training and resources. How long have you been with Mississippi Department of Education? I came to the department in January of 2012. Okay. Okay. So you've been with them for quite a minute. So I am so glad we are able to get your expertise on the show. Now, I wanted to go ahead and get into the discussion of the 
Mississippi succeeds maintaining momentum through COVID-19, what that looks like, the vision and the mission and all of that that goes into it, school reopenings, academic planning, statewide assessments and accountability and more. So I wanted to go ahead and get talking about how was this request kind of developed about them trying to change this end of course assessments for 2020 to 2021. The department looked closely at kind of where we were as a state, knowing that we had students in and out of remote and hybrid and face-to-face learning opportunities over the course of the fall and less so in the spring. We've got more students back in schools now in some form or fashion than we did the start of the school year. But as we looked at kind of the landscape of where we were as a state and we recognized some of the challenges that teachers were facing with different delivery models, students were facing with connectivity and access to devices and and to broadband connections. We felt like there was a need there that we assess students, that we get a sense of where they were at the end of the 2020-2021 school year, but we did not want to necessarily tie those results back to a requirement for promotion from third to fourth grade, for instance, or to an end-of-course exam in high school. And so we pursued some flexibility to allow us to give the exams because we feel like the information we gather from those is quite important to informing our work as a state, and it's important to informing districts and their understanding of where students are at the end of this school year. But we did not want to be in a position where we were necessarily tying those assessment results back to individual student level, school level uh, accountability ratings. Right. So the assessments are still going to happen. If I was a student, Nathan, I would have thought when I heard the news that we weren't going to have to take any test. So the clarification is those assessments will still happen. They'll just be assessed in a different way. Absolutely. The assessments will still happen. What we did is we extended the window of time that districts had to give them. So we've given them a little bit of extra time on the front end of what is our typical assessment window. And we've given them some extra time at the back end of that assessment window so that they could work students in and out of the assessment as they needed to in smaller groups if necessary. We've given some flexibility on how they're able to administer those with regard to class size or proctor requirements or other kinds of things. Now, when it comes down to the third grade, this is my question that I have. I was reading third grade reading and high school end of course assessments. What is so special about these third graders and their reading assessments? I did not know the third grade was such a a pivotal time in a child's life. Third grade is kind of a benchmark. You you will often hear the phrase as students move from kindergarten through third grade, they're learning to read. And beyond third grade, you often hear that they are reading to learn. And so there's this pivot there somewhere around third grade where students reading and the use of their reading is different than it was in earlier grades. One of the things that Mississippi does, and this is, we're, we're not the only state to do this, but we have a third grade law, the Literacy-Based Promotion Act, that passed in 2013 that requires students at the end of third grade, absent uh, one of a few good cause exemptions, students at the end of third grade have to score at a certain level on their third grade statewide exam and reading to be able to promote to fourth grade. And so what we've done is we've requested for this year and we've received approval on this. Students will take that third grade exam, but there's no certain score required to be able to promote to fourth grade uh, at the end of this school year. Now, when it comes down to COVID learning loss as it relates to equitable achievement gap disparities, what kind of research went into that? Because, of course, you know, we're just now 
I mean, basically, this whole COVID learning loss thing is new. It's a year in. And so what kind of research maybe went into that, into how MDE addressed that in saying, okay, we're going to have to make some changes to these end-of-the-year assessments? We recognize, first of all, at the, at the end of 1920, the 1920 school year, at the end of the 1920 school year, we did not have statewide exams. We didn't give those. Schools were essentially delivering pencil paper packets and some digital learning opportunities to students at the end of the last school year. And so as we moved into this current year, we had already gone a year without assessment results to kind of get a picture of where we were statewide and district-wide, school-wide, student level. And so there's this great sense that we need some consistent measure there to see what that impact has really been. When we look at the impact on students over the last year, we recognize there's been a greater impact on students in rural settings, often students of poverty, who may not have access to technology, to internet connectivity, to be able to continue learning. Even if they have access to a device through the program, like the Mississippi Connects program, they may not have connectivity at home. And so those are two big pieces that we had to consider as we were kind of planning for this year, prioritizing what we needed to do to support families, and then considering what we needed to do with regard to assessments for this spring. Right. So let's talk about Mississippi Connects. I'm glad you brought that up. Now, Mississippi legislators passed two laws that made Mississippi the only state in the nation with a comprehensive digital learning program that provides computers to every public school student in the state. This is every public school student. Um, And there are some components to this, devices and services, digital curriculum and learning management systems, connectivity, professional development, telehealth, and teletherapy. Can you tell me how this program has gone and what you have seen, um, how how you've assessed this in action? So we have have gotten devices out to... uh, schools out to, to students at this point in time. The devices were delivered uh, in the fall. The last devices came in in November. And we had right at 390,000 devices purchased uh, across the state. We used um, almost 99% of the funding on the device side uh, for the Mississippi Connects program and then used uh, almost 80% of the funding on the broadband side. Um, I would share when we talk about Mississippi Connect, it's not just the devices, mm-hmm. it's all the supports that go along with that. And so we've gotten devices out, PD, professional development. In educator terms, PD is professional development. But in addition to the devices, we've launched professional development across the state. Right. We've, we're working closely with our vendors, with Google and Microsoft and Apple and other providers that are learning management system providers to provide professional development to teachers across the state to support them in the implementation and the use of the devices. We also are hosting an educator summit later this month in the afternoon, the week of March 23rd through 25th, mm-hmm. for teachers across the state. And that will have breakout sessions that, again, help them focus on the individual systems their district may be using, the software packages their districts may be using, the hardware their district may be using. So all of that has been another piece of this project. So in addition to devices, connectivity, we've got professional development going on, And then we are looking over the long term to try to get a sense of impact of the program as we look at device use, as we look at teacher training and uptake on the professional development. All of that is kind of in this three-year project going forward. 
Now, when it comes down to professional development, how important has it been in this past year for educators to be professionally developed when it comes down to the pandemic and the new changes? This is not just like a regular year, but how important is this to educators across the state of Mississippi? I think professional development is every bit as important now and probably even more so than it has ever been, uh, at least in my 20 plus years in education. The teachers across the state have done an incredible job. Districts pivoted on a dime last mm-hmm. March from, from what they had done with face-to-face delivery for years and years and years. All of a sudden, that's not an option for them for that last nine weeks of the school year. And so we had teachers finding ways to deliver content via Zoom sessions, via telephone calls, via pencil paper packets that were delivered by bus. And then as we moved into the summer, districts were a little better prepared coming back from the summer because they had some time to plan and to rethink and to strategize about how they could deliver content in the fall. We gave some flexibility to districts in the current year around how to deliver content, whether it's virtually, mm-hmm. whether it's in a hybrid setting with students in and out of the building, or whether it's a full in-person school day. And so there are different aspects, though. And you know this probably from your time doing radio over the last year, it's been very different from where you might sit down in, in a typical setting across the couch from somebody for an interview, going to, to telephone and to Zoom right. calls and, and other kinds of uh, teleconference means. So teachers were having to, to reframe how they delivered instruction to students, and in some cases had not done that virtual delivery before. Mm-hmm. So as a department, we, when the pandemic hit last March, we pivoted on a lot of our professional development that had been face-to-face into a virtual model and started delivering that in bite-sized chunks that teachers could stream on demand as they wanted to, into online courses they could sign up and take with colleagues from across the state that allowed for some interaction with other teachers in real time, as well as through chat boards or other, other means that happened asynchronously. And then we reframed not just the method by which we delivered the professional development, but also the content of it to include some additional focus on the shifts that needed to happen instructionally to support teachers as they were working with students in in different learning environments. Now, let's talk about some of these new different learning techniques and and resources. I'd just go ahead and address the elephant in the room, which is not an elephant to us here, but the MPB Education Channel, MPB Classroom TV, developed in between us here and Mississippi Department of Education, supporting students, teachers, and parents during the pandemic. How excited has it been to be able to see this in action here at Mississippi Public Broadcasting in conjunction with you all there at the Mississippi Department of Education? It's been great. It's been remarkable to see what folks in a place like Mississippi, you know, with with our own resources, with our own educators, our own professionals on the broadcasting side, we're able to pull together to support families across the state. And, you know, we talked a few minutes ago about connectivity and how we've got places in the state, even with the connectivity bill and the mm-hmm. hotspots and some of the broadband pieces that are being addressed, that's a long view toward addressing that. There's, there's pieces there that will take years to get into place. But when we look at the footprint of MPB and over-the-air television, we know that we reach the far corners of the state through MPB. And so to have a, a channel that's dedicated to that, that's consistent day-to-day, across grade levels, across content areas, has been tremendous. 
Now, for those of you who don't know, that MPB Classroom TV, you can watch that weekday starting at 7 a.m. Certified teachers and Mississippi Department of Education content staff teach 25-minute lessons aligned to the Mississippi College and Career Readiness Standards. So to all my listeners here in the state, that is a really, really great resource. If you're having connectivity issues, this is a free channel on broadcast cable, so you might need your rabbit ears or a box to be able to access this. But once you get access, you are in there and we have a full schedule that is laid out on a weekly basis. If you need more information about that schedule, that's going to be education.mpbonline.org. Now, Nathan, I wanted to talk about the school reopening and the superintendent's task force on school reopening. What does that task force look like and what has it done to be able to make sure, you know, I guess they've gone back in school, some of them. How has that helped the the transition in between coming from a virtual learning setting going back into school? Yes, we've released actually four of these documents. The first one was Considerations for Reopening Schools. It came out last summer, developed with a group of superintendents from across the state, really focused on academics and operations and health and safety, technology needs, just the different academic programming, all these pieces that come into play day-to-day in a school being up and running for students. And so we released that first version back in the summer and in the fall uh, in September. Wow. Uh, we released uh, a subsequent edition focused on equitable instructional systems and what schools might want to consider as they're planning for instruction, as they're moved, as they kind of moving into that second nine weeks, they've got their feet underneath them, they've gotten reopened in either face-to-face or virtually or hybrid. And then we released another version in December to help districts consider how they're working to provide equitable experiences for families and for students, particularly students who may be coming to school from a different background, students mm-hmm. of poverty, students with learning disabilities, students who are not native English learners. And so that, again, gave districts some guidance and considerations they could use to gather feedback from their communities to get a sense of how different sub-communities within their school community were being reached and what their needs were. And then just recently, we've released a considerations for summer programming document that helps provide some guiding questions for districts as they're looking at going into the summer of 2021 and what programming they might want to make available to students. How do they prioritize that? What are the student groups they need to focus on as we move into the summer season between school terms? Right. Now, in addition to that, y'all have some resources that support some of this you know, I guess the transition. And I wanted to talk about the social and emotional, the SEL standards. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So we work closely with CASEL. It's the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning over the last several years to create a set of social-emotional learning standards for our state. I like to think of these as standards that a classroom teacher across grade levels, across content areas, could easily incorporate into their classroom to develop well-rounded students. These are life skills that we want our students to have to be able to kind of get a sense of their own emotions, their own feelings, learning how to deal with those, learning how to advocate for themselves, how to express themselves constructively when they're they're frustrated or when they're upset, how to relate to other students, older and younger and different and the same as as they might be, and then really how how to take those and to use them in a classroom setting to help students be better equipped as they navigate through transitions from school to school, as mm-hmm. they navigate through middle school to high school and beyond. 
really as they want to as we want to help our students be able to achieve their personal goals. We want students in a classroom to be able to achieve their goals collectively, to show empathy for one another, to build supportive relationships, and really to make responsible, caring decisions as they work individually and in groups. And I think that's such a great thing, especially you never know what they went through in this past year. So to be able to provide that support and emotional health support is such a great thing. And then I'm reading about telehealth and teletherapy. You all collaborated with Mississippi State Medical Association to develop school-based telehealth teletherapy that is set to launch in this year, 2021. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. I can, I can dive into that just, just briefly. Dr. Wright has really taken the lead on that. She is very passionate about the well-being of our students and our staff, our teachers, our educators across the state. And so she's been in close connection with our medical professionals across the state to ensure that we are building a system by which we're able to provide support to students in their local schools through telehealth via technology mm-hmm. from a distance. Particularly in rural parts of the state, there's not necessarily um, mental health professionals or other health professionals there close by that can support students. And so we're, we're exploring through this partnership with the medical agencies in the state of how we can best support our students, given what we know they've experienced, particularly over the last year. But at the same time, just like our social-emotional learning work that started probably two years ago now, this has been on our radar and the pandemic has just kind of lifted it up as a priority, reaffirmed our need to tackle these these issues. Right. There's so many great resources that you all have out there. We could just list these all day. I don't know if we touched on the high quality instruction materials with Mississippi First, that website for teachers to increase their access to high quality instruction materials. Do you know any about that? I do. So that initiative has come out of our Office of Academic Ed at the department. And we have been working over the last several years to really strengthen the quality of materials that we review and recommend to the state board for adoption to allow districts to purchase off of the state contract. And so we started with mathematics a couple of years ago. We've done work in social studies and science, and we're now working through English language arts, and we'll be taking recommendations to our board for approval in the coming months for use in the upcoming year. But that msinstructionalmaterials.org is the website, and it's got all kinds of information for teachers to be able to understand the review process, to dig in and look at the materials that have already been reviewed, it's just a wealth of information for them. Right. Now, Dr. Um, Nathan Oakley, I'm going to call you doctor again. <laughs> I'm going to go back and forth with it. But I wanted to know, what can parents do to get in contact with anybody concerning, you know, if they have questions about state assessments, if they are trying to clarify, is there anybody to call? Is there any website to use when it comes down to some of these resources and where they can all find this in one big hub? So our state assessment office is actually meeting with district test coordinators. So there's an individual in each school district and then at each school that's responsible for administration of our statewide exams. Uh, The Office of Student Assessment at the department handles that at the state level. But then there are district and local contacts at the school level as well. And our, our state office is actually meeting with district leaders on the assessment side this week to get them the latest information on where we are regarding the assessments. That local district is probably the best place to go because districts set up their schedule. They're the ones that are able to look closely at student individual education programs, their IEPs, possible accommodations for students with disabilities. They're the ones that are much more deeply connected to that at the student level than the department. 
But at the state level, our Office of Student Assessment is the office that handles that. The place to go. Make sure if you have any questions, hit up your district. It's the way to get your answer. Nathan, do you have anything else that you wanted to leave my listeners with? We're excited about the upcoming school year. It's been remarkable to see how teachers and educators, administrators, parents, students have responded. Um, I think the last year has really given us a glimpse of humanity and how we can empathize with one another. I've been on so many calls where, you know, a professional on the other end had a dog run across the the room in the middle of a meeting. <laughs> and like we just we we've kind of come to understand that that we're all people and we all have lives and all of those lives are unique and interesting and they're more similar than we may realize sometimes. But to the educators and to the families across the state, it's been incredible to see how innovative, how creative, how responsive folks have been over the last year to try to address the needs of students. Mississippi, as I've talked with colleagues in other states, we've got a lot more students back in the classroom on a regular basis and half for a number of months now than many other places. And so that's been, I think, a testament to the commitment from our districts across the state and from our families wanting that opportunity for their students to learn. So again, we're just excited about where we're going as a state. It's been remarkable to see the progress we've made over the last several years, and we're excited about picking that back up and continuing forward. Thank you, Doc. That's some good stuff you just said there. And to my listeners, I've been sitting in with Dr. Nathan Oakley, Chief Academic Officer at the Mississippi Department of Education. Again, thank you, Dr. Oakley, for joining me. Appreciate the time to visit. Thanks so much. Thank you. with me, I have a Dr. Esther Wuschiski. She is an American journalist, educator, and vice chair of the Creating Commons Advisory Council. Now, she is a first-generation college student to attend college in her family. She was valedictorian of her high school class, graduated from the University of California, Berkeley with a BA in English and Political Science. She also received a secondary teaching credential from University of California, Berkeley, as well as a graduate degree from the Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley. Now, she has an advanced degree in French and French history from the Sorbonne and both a secondary school administrative credential and a MA in educational technology from San Jose State University. Now, to add to all of these credentials, she has been an educator with Apollo Alto High School in California, where she currently teaches journalism and English. She had began the journalism program there, which has grown to become one of the largest in America. She is a regular blogger for the Huffington Post. Add to that, she was named 1990 Northern California Journalism Teacher of the Year, as well as selected as the California Teacher of the Year in 2002 by the California Commission on Teacher Credentialing. Now, she also holds an honorary doctorate from Palo Alto University and from the Rhode Island School of Design in 2019, she was the author of the book, How to Raise Successful People, a parenting book on the philosophy she used in raising her three daughters. A repeat TED Talks presenter, I'd like to present to you, Dr. Esther Wuschitsky. Welcome to the chat, Doc. Oh, I am so excited to be here, and thank you for that incredible introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Doc, your credentials are a mile long, and that wasn't even the full Wikipedia. <laughs> 
But I would like to welcome you to Chalkboard Chat, an MPB education podcast. And I want to go ahead and get started, Doc. Now, Doc, with all of your credentials and as long as you've been an educator, I know that you have dealt with summer learning slide. We're going to get into our discussion about COVID learning loss, but I know you've dealt with summer learning slide and that terminology. Tell me the extent of what you have dealt with as far as COVID learning loss goes in relation to summer slide, summer learning loss. So the summer learning loss was usually kids would, they would never read or they wouldn't do any writing. They wouldn't do anything over the summer. And so then it's just like learning a foreign language. If you've learned a foreign language in June and then you never practice it at all until September, well, of course you forget it. But this all came back. In other words, they would have the loss over the summer, and then the minute you started practicing again and doing some of the same things that you had done before the summer started, the learning loss would disappear. And so, I mean, I never thought of it as a really big deal. I just thought of it as the way people function when they have not keeping up. I didn't worry about it. I think in this particular case, what we have going now is we've got a a very long learning loss because it's the COVID learning loss. It's not just three months, but it's more like a year and going to be a year and three months or maybe even longer. And so the question is, you know, how much did my child, how much did they miss? How much haven't they retained? And what can we do to help them catch up? I think that is one of the things that I'd like to talk about. Right. Now, Doc, for me, learning loss is when we had went into the pandemic and we had to come home and telework and I came back and I forgot my password to my computer. But I don't think that (laughs) I don't think that's the same thing. So (laughs) so when it comes down to learning loss in students and let's just take, I guess, you know, high school, elementary school students in this aspect, though. But let's just take them and look at them. So learning loss for them looks a little bit different. It's missing something or it's what you had learned the year prior? That's correct. Number one, it's what you'd learned the year prior that you forgot because you haven't been building on it. But it's also what you didn't learn. I'm not as worried about that as perhaps other people are, because if you think of all the things you didn't learn, Mm -hmm. most of them are memorization. You memorize different things that usually didn't mean a lot to you. And then all this research shows that after you've memorized for a test, three weeks after that test, you only remember 32%. So I think as long as school is a consistent sort of smorgasbord of memorization, I'm not so sure that it makes that big of a difference because you can catch up. You know, you hear about kids that, you know, didn't start school on time for one reason or another or missed school for a year because of, I don't know, either family illness or travel or something. And somehow, rather, they seem to be just fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing will happen as kids go back to school in September, as long as we don't make them feel bad about it. And as long as we say this is something that you are going to be able to catch up, I think that they will all work on catching up. 
I think the problem will come is if they all feel bad about themselves, then it's hard to work effectively when you feel bad about yourself or you feel like, you know, somehow there's something about you that isn't good enough. And I'm telling you, I think these kids in this pandemic, a lot of them have learned a lot of other things that they might not have learned if they had been in school all the time. For example, a lot of kids have learned to cook and to bake, and they never would have learned that before. And they might have learned some other things online through maybe YouTube or some of the other videos that they watch that they probably would not have learned before because they wouldn't have had that opportunity. And also, for every single kid out there, they have learned how to use Zoom. They've learned how to do distance learning, which is really important because if you just look at the way the companies are working right now, everything is done on Zoom. All these people are having meetings on Zoom instead of meetings in the corporate room or whatever. And so all the adults and all the businesses are working that way. So if kids know how to do that from school, I think they'll be one step ahead. Because prior to the pandemic, nobody heard of Zoom or very few people heard of Zoom. And now, whether they like it or not, they know what it is. Right. Now, so this is all going into new learning styles. So instead of having learning loss where it's textbooks based, you're now kind of gaining new skills in different areas, like you say, baking and, and Zoom and things of that nature. So where you're losing a little of that loss, you're gaining some others. And like you say, just to try not to make them feel bad about the fact that it's called a loss, maybe we should just name it a slip. <laughs> a summer, not a, a summer diversion. slip. <laughs> right. right. A diversion. <laughs> yes. Our attention was diverted to another activity for a year. And maybe they now know a lot more about viruses. They might know more about vaccinations. They might have paid a lot more attention to politics than they ever did before. I mean, I remember years ago, one of the challenges was, how do you get kids interested in voting? They never want to vote. Mm-hmm. They don't even want to they don't even want to hear about anything coming out of washington, d c. Now we don't have to worry about that anymore. Everybody is focused on it. So I think even little kids are talking about politics mm-hmm. and it's because it's so dramatic. So we're all concerned, democracy, we're all concerned about what's happening, and democracy is basically participation of the people in the government. And so hopefully we will have as many kids interested in participating as possible, because that helps our democracy be effective. Right. Now, Doc, as it relates to Palo Alto High School and what you've seen there, have you had any students come to you about maybe learning loss or anything that they've experienced during the pandemic related to them coming back? No, none of them seem to be concerned. So I should just tell you, Palo Alto High School and all of the Palo Alto School District, we all did remote learning like everyone else. And much of the time, kids did not pay attention online. Even if they came, they didn't really pay attention. And then there were other situations where the kids would turn their camera off 
And so it was hard to interact with them and hard for the teacher. So this happened all over the United States. It wasn't just localized in any one area. But what we did and what I did in Palo Alto, and some of the other teachers also did the same, is that we put the kids in charge of the Zoom calls. Now, don't be shocked. (laughs) (laughs) I'm scared. I'm not shocked. I'm just scared, Doc. (laughs) (laughs) They were in charge of presenting the lesson, and everybody showed up because they all wanted to see their friends. So that's one of the gifts of giving the kids an opportunity to be in charge because it's peer-to-peer interaction. And the main thing that those kids were missing about school, I'm sorry to say it wasn't the teacher, it was their friends. And so giving them an opportunity to interact with their friends on Zoom made them all show up and all work together. And I don't think that this was a very common solution. And it probably should have been a better, a more common solution because it's very effective. And in the midst of the pandemic, my students continued to produce a newspaper, magazines, radio, television, everything, because they were all working together as a team and they all wanted to be with each other. Uh And so that is, you know, if we continue in the fall with having any kind of remote learning, I would like to suggest that kids be given a certain percentage of time to be the leaders of the class. Because in that situation, they learn how to lead, they learn how to teach, they learn how to organize. It's a great experience for them. Right. I love it. I love the idea that y'all put it in in their hands. Side note, we tried... We tried here. We had like 2,000 kids that had registered and came on. And we're new to the Zoom thing. Like we had to pick it up really here at MPB a lot last year. So we're we're still learning the ins and outs, like how to cut off annotation and <laughs> how to do this. Because what ended up happening, these little kids know like how to write on the screen. They were writing on the screen, on the screen. <laughs> It was like they were. (laughs) So telling you, they know a lot. Yeah, they really do. And then they were talking to each other through the chat, and it was a lot. But it was like little kids doing this. This isn't high schoolers we invited. You know, this is under ten year olds who are you know writing on the screen. So, so funny. You know what I just want to say about that? It's a perfect example of, I always say, kids are smarter than you think they are. And here is a perfect example. They are so smart, they can figure out all this tech much faster, better than you can, and they can do all kinds of things. Doc, it's mind-blowing. It blows. mind-blowing. So if you put them in charge and tell them that they're in charge of the lesson or tell them they're in charge of whatever it is you're teaching... They will take those same incredible skills, and they will do all the good stuff with it this time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let them them run it at least, because when they ain't running it, they're doing that on the screen. (laughs) That's right. You just want to keep them busy. Put them in positions of responsibility and rise to the occasion. Right, Doc. Keep them busy. (laughs) (laughs) 
because they and look, my coworkers here were like they they were scared they were were gonna have to cut off the entire Zoom and then cut it back on because they couldn't figure out how to turn off that annotation. <laughs> It was hilarious. <laughs> I can tell you that the kids probably never stopped talking about it. Right. But I did. Right. Right. Too funny. Too funny, Doc. Okay, so we're going to get back on track because I didn't get tickled. Okay, so now, Doc, I wanted to ask you with... Palo Alto High School and maybe just schools in general in California, I wanted to know what they were doing to respond to any of the COVID loss that maybe they're experiencing out there in California, because here our state superintendent of education for the Mississippi Department of Education is recommending waiving the passing requirements for a statewide third grade reading and high school end of course assessments for this year because of the fact that COVID-19 had disrupted teaching and learning. So is there any kind of policy changes or anything that they're asking for in your state, maybe in your high school? Well, we've done pretty much the same thing. I think one of the reasons why they're canceling the test is because they don't want the kids to feel bad about themselves. And the test results will be kids are not prepared for the test, and so they'll take it and they might not do well, so the test results are really invalid anyway. Um, So we are not using tests here in California either right now. And as a matter of fact, the SAT has been canceled in many parts of the U.S. Uh, the California State University system has seen that they canceled the use of the SAT exam. And as a result, what's interesting, they've seen a 20% increase of students applying to the University of California. And these kids are coming from black and brown communities who did not even consider applying before. So I think that test was more of a barrier mm-hmm. than it was anything else, because I think it's great that all these kids are applying and want to go. And I think this university needs to support them. If they are, if there's any skill they're missing, they can take courses while they're there to help them. It's not going to be hard to catch up. What they're just, they're just missing, like I said, a lot of memorization of facts that you, don't matter anyway, for the most part. I mean, if you just think about it, I mean, I can barely remember even the names of the courses I took when I was in college, let alone what I learned. And most people are in that situation. So you just want their reading skills to be good, reading and math skills. So, And with reading skills, they, if they, during this pandemic, were just reading anything, books, magazines, you know, newspapers on their phone or on a device, they will not be behind. Right, right. Just using what they've got in their hands. Use what you've got. (laughs) That's right. Use what you've got. And then also, you know, have them come up with some projects that they want to do. Like I said, baking and, you know, cooking and growing plants in the garden or, you know, making a map of the neighborhood and walking around and doing things that are that they hadn't had a chance to do before. Uh, there's a lot of things that kids were too busy doing at other things at school that they didn't have a chance to do at home. And so maybe now they can do some of those things. 
they should have been hopefully doing a lot of it already. Right. Now, Doc, you've given us more than enough tips, and I dare not to squeeze any more out of you, but... conversation you are the best i'm a little i'm a little wild doc i'm a little crazy but they know that (laughs) but um just to squeeze a little bit more maybe professional takes or tips that you have for parental success when it comes to learning loss or covid learning slide in general so here's something that your listeners can do So I worked with my former students. Um, He graduated 2006, and he came back and wanted to work with me. We set up a company called Tract, T-R-A-C-T, Tract.app. It was his idea, the name. And this is a gamified learning company, gamified. So it makes learning fun and into a game. And it's for kids age 8 through 15, basically, or 16. And so parents can tell their kids to use their phone or use their computer or their tablet or whatever and go to track.app. They will play games and learn a lot at the same time. And my goal with this app was to teach what I call the four C's, the most important. It's critical thinking, creativity, communication, and collaboration. Those are the four C's. They learn to collaborate, learn to communicate with each other, learn to think critically, and learn to be creative. So they can do that, and here's a little code they can have so they can do it for free to start. And it's just use the first three letters of my last name, W-O-J. And it's woj.track.app. When they get in there, they put in... W-O-J, that's the code, and they'll get free access. And they can just put their kid on that. The kid will be happy and be um, entertained and be learning at the same time. How's that? Thanks, Doc. Math skills. That's what I hope they can do. Thank you for the code. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Everybody loves free. They need, if they need, well, this is three months. So okay. If they need more, then of course we can have another conversation. We'll figure out another code, of course. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Now, Doc, I have had such a great time talking with you. Is there any contact information if anybody needed to maybe ask you a question or get your advice? So, um, you know, I've got that really long last name, unfortunately, <laughs> and my first name. And so it's a little bit of a challenge, but, you know, I, I am on Twitter. And it's just, unfortunately, my whole name, Esther Wojcicki, at Twitter. It's at Twitter. Um, The other thing is if they had a question they wanted to ask me, they can send it to me at Tract. It would be just info, I-N-F-O, at Tract.app, and I would respond to that. And that's just for, for anybody that has a question or anybody that would like to have some, you know, if there's something that you'd like to have that perhaps I can offer you, that's also a good way to get it. So, so if your kid is driving you crazy, put him on track. <laughs> that, that's, is like, that the tagline, Doc? <laughs> is that the tagline? Yes. <laughs> that's the tagline. <laughs> oh, my God. It really I'm is. If your kid is driving you crazy, put him on track. <laughs> <laughs> 
my goal is really to help parents and to help kids have a much more productive experience in life right now because it's very difficult. We've all had a tough time. And so whatever I can do to help them and help kids, that's what I'm trying to do. That's that's actually the goal of TRACT, too, to help help everybody because we're going to get through this. Mm-hmm. It's just we need to get through it, you know, in style. Let's put it that way, a little better. I love it, Doc. I love it. Dr. <laughs> Esther Wuschewski, I thank you so much for coming on. I watched one of those TED Talks. I'm going back to watch another. You are just so well-spoken, so informative, so knowledgeable. And I knew I was I was going to get that when I got on air with you today. And I just thank you for everything that you've given me um, and what you've given my audience. So just thank you for, for everything that you said in this interview. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you. I had fun talking with you too, Doc. <laughs> And again, this was Dr. Esther Wojcicki. If you'd like to spell her last name, because she did say it's long, that is going to be W-O-J-C-I-C-K-I. In with me is Dr. Joseph Atman. He is the director of Middle Tree, a nonprofit education center based in Claremont, California. He's also a published author writing extensively in the field of education. And he is mostly interested in helping students and their families overcome the pitfalls and difficulties of the education system. He is here today. Right now, I'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Joseph Atman. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Atman. Thank you so much for having me. I am so glad you are here on Chalkboard Chat all the way from California to Mississippi. We are going to be bridging this nationwide gap somehow, Doc. And this <laughs> this is how <laughs> we'll we're we'll get there. We're going to get there. This is how we're going to do it. Now, when it comes down to you being in education, tell me about your journey, whether it be your college journey into. I see a lot of stuff here. I don't. I don't even want to preempt it, but I just want you to let our listeners know a little bit about your education. Sure. I guess it really starts with the fact that from a relatively early age, I just did not think that I was all that intelligent. As soon as I started, you know, getting really challenged in school, right around probably late elementary, middle school, I just felt that I wasn't able to keep up, that things were not connecting with me Mm -hmm. intellectually, academically. And I just began to feel that I was not all that intelligent. And that was the narrative mm. that I started to surround myself with. Right. Um, and that was, of course, reinforced by poor grades being brought home and then my parents being frustrated, you know, mm-hmm. at that. And then me, you know, kind of wallowing and not giving the effort because, you know, when you're a kid, you don't right. have those coping skills. Yeah. And then that went all the way through high school. But there was one subject that I was okay at, and I've kind of already mentioned it, it was, was reading English. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, in my senior year, my first semester, I was in a class called Religious Quest. It was an honors class. It was taught by this one man who was the head of the department. It was the only class that he taught. 
and and he was sort of a legendary guy. Yeah. Because he only taught this one class, and he, uh, you know, w- w- had this whole mystique around him for having done so because it was this life life altering class. Yeah. Uh, and it was done very much in a college seminar, and all of a sudden in that class, I. W- just absolutely burst open academically. It mm-hmm. sort of gave me a format to really espouse my ideas and really work through some things intellectually, academically, spiritually yeah. that brought me into a different place, so much so that one day he took me aside and asked me what I was doing with my life. And I, I, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, and he said and he said something that you know, I to this day I will never forget exactly as it was. Uh, he changed my life with one sentence. He said, "You have a very powerful mind. You should use it." Uh, so there yeah. it was. The, the the smartest person that I knew, the person that I most respected intellectually, was telling me that I was capable. And so that changed my life forever. I was a, a teacher, a person who became a mentor, someone I looked up to, telling me that that I was capable and that that I was able. And uh, he went so far as to recommend and actually put me on a plane to uh, Hofstra University where he knew of this particular program that he thought that I would flourish in. And he was right. And I I did. I I connected really well with this program and just got involved with uh, education uh, and academia in general. And yeah, here we are. And then you went on to receive your theological doctorate from St. Mary's Seminary following Hosfer, correct? Correct. Yeah, okay. I, went to, I came out to Claremont uh, Graduate University to uh, get a Ph.D. in the philosophy of religion and theology, and I uh, got through all that coursework, uh, wrote the dissertation, and realized that the dissertation really rallied very much against education as a happening in general, and basically said that education as it is, especially, you know, degrees in philosophy, which was a part of my degree. And of course, yeah. that, that PH at the front of your PhD stands for philosophy, regardless of whether that's a philosophy, uh, you know, doctorate of biology, a philosophy yeah. doctorate of mathematics or philosophy. Yeah. Um, that, uh, that the way, having been through the entirety of the education system, I had more or less said in, in that dissertation that, the education system is not all that it could be, mm-hmm. and it is, for me, largely a, a meaningless degree, which is why I opted actually to go get a, a sacred theological doctorate uh, at, at a seminary. At a seminary. After, after some, yeah, after some, uh, uh, well, quite a lot of debate internally within myself and, and uh, uh, with, with some other folks um, who uh, sort of gave me the permission to go ahead and do that. You know, that was uh, the PhD was something... It was the only thing that I wanted for for such a long time. Uh, but that's it's just a label, right? It's 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 just a, a title. Uh, it does not, of course, make me who I am as a person or as an academic. You know, you don't need to. And listen, I have a world class education from some of the best minds in the field. Uh, yet at the end of the day, if if you don't do something with that yourself creatively, if you don't further that at all then there's really no point to the education. I, you know, again, this was an internal debate. You know, education is, is about asking questions and it's about trying to be open and, and understand certain things. And for me, it was a pretty, after a while, it was a difficult decision, but, but one that I was really, really comfortable with outside of those illustrious post-nominals of having an STD currently. Other than that, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, 
been a, a choice academically that I have been really comfortable with and, and proud of. Right. Now, for those of you who don't know, the SCD is the Seminary Theological Doctorate. Am I saying that right? Sacred Sacred Theological. Sacred Theological. Okay. Doctorate degree. And tell me something. Tell me the correlation now between, I mean, because education to me is the bottom line of what you did, even though you went, you know, into seminary school, it was all education. So tell me how you got back to and not really getting back, but you took an, an alternate route. But how did you get back to coming into, and I wanted to save this to the end, but I'm not going to do it. But <laughs> how did you get back into coming from that into wanting to um, help families overcome the education system with Middle Tree? Well, it's a good question, right? because it's not, of course, like most things, a straight line. And I wish I could tell you that I had this, this great idea all along to, to save education and, and to be this beacon for educational justice and, and do all the things that we're currently doing within education. But, but the reality is, is that once I got through with, with my doctoral programs, I was sort of at an impasse. Education, especially in higher academics mm-hmm. after the Great Recession, was, was and continues to be in this very strange place so far as education, again, in higher academia, tends to produce more academics than it has jobs for. Right. So, you know, there are so many people who, who are applying for, for a, a very, very small uh, number of positions across the country. And I was kind of looking at some of my colleagues, some of my friends who had, had gone that route of, uh, of you know, because well, especially when you're in the degree that I was in, or I have there's not a whole lot that you can do other than, than teach or, or uh, you know, be involved with a church or a community in, in some way. Because, you know, in philosophy, I mean, they're, they're, not, they're not teaching you, you know, how to you know, work around the house, per se. Or, yeah. or it's working with your mind and figuring out how that mind, your consciousness operates and can be elastic enough, hopefully, to come into problems, resolve them which is useful in any field, and yet at the same time, ironically enough, there aren't a whole lot of you know, professions that uh, are looking specifically for philosophy. Right. So when I was <laughs> going into the job market, I uh, was, again, kind of looking around at my peer group, and adjuncting was the avenue to pursue towards uh, a career in academics, and adjuncting is a very, very difficult gig. It's really long hours. It's unstable. It's low pay. It's like part-time, part-time professorship. Exactly. That's that's precisely what it is. When you're an adjunct, you are contracted. Typically speaking, you're you're contracted to do a particular class, and that when once that class ends, there's no no guarantee that mm-hmm. they're going to ask you to come back mm-hmm. and teach again. Um, so you're you're doing one one class now. This works out really well for a lot of the colleges because they don't have to pay their their tenure track folks necessarily uh, to to teach those those courses. Even though you know tenure track folks are obligated to uh, give a certain amount of hours towards the university, but uh, it can be of benefit to to the university to simply hire an adjunct uh, um, to uh, to take on courses. And often they're courses that 
other faculty who have been there for a little while maybe maybe don't want, want any intro mm-hmm. courses, survey classes, stuff, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's it, you know, so I knew a lot of a lot of students, uh, or excuse me, a lot of uh, well, my fellow grad students at the time, my, my colleagues and peers, a lot of them. Uh, we're teaching, you know, five, six classes in a semester and not at one school, you understand. They're bouncing around doing <laughs> right. all over the place. Right. right? They're, so, they're the they, Uber they the Uber drivers of education. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, uh, and so I thought, well, um, maybe, uh, and, and it's not like also, by the way, I just decide that I want to be an adjunct and, and <laughs> poof, there's a job yeah. for you, right? Yeah. That's not how it goes. Yeah. Um, so as I was applying and, and waiting to hear back from all these various schools, uh, I thought, again, I, I'm not particularly skilled uh, in any trade or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I've been in academia uh, on an administrative level for a number of years before that with uh, some of my work uh, at, at Hofstra University and, and, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I said, well, maybe I could do a, a an academic program um, for the, just for the summer uh, that a- allowed students to, well, as we're going to talk about here, uh, prevent some of that summer learning loss um, that, that, that occurs every year uh, and make that program affordable and make it so that um, people have access to it sort of regardless of circumstance. Um, it, was a, it was a total deviation from uh, what I had planned on doing, and I had really just planned on doing it for, for a short amount of time yeah. uh, initially, because um, I, I had some other ideas of, of things that I thought you know, I, I might want to get involved in, of course. And the idea simply took off, and the, that idea was one that, uh, again, regardless of your financial situation, regardless of your, your existential cir- circumstance in life generally, uh, you could have access to this program and uh, get whatever you needed from it as as a student and as a parent uh, and as a family that uh, yeah. uh, wanted to see you know uh, your student your child uh, advance educationally um, in a, in an environment that was suited uh, and tailored to that particular individual. So right. That's how, that's how we started, and it was just so successful. It's a six week program initially. It was just it was successful enough to. Um, continue on, and, and uh, we've been very fortunate to um, have that be the trend over the last uh, six years or so. Right. So you offer tutoring. This organization offers tutoring and educational assistance. Correct. Yeah. Tutoring, test preparation, uh, college prep. Uh, we also uh, do uh, uh, handle financial aid uh, for folks with their student loans. Um and so there are a number of things all mined uh, towards uh, the general difficulties that are in education. And those, those general difficulties, uh, of course, uh, are start and end with, with people's academic struggles um, initially. And then when you move on, of course, uh, the academic struggles remain and then finance become a part of the issue. Uh, for you as an individual, finances, of course, are always a part of uh, the conversation uh, when we're we're talking about uh, a family's capacity to educate their their own children. Right, right. It's a whole. So, middle tree almost sounds like a holistic approach to education. 
In a way, yeah. Way to pay it forward, Doc. Way to pay it forward. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Now, when we're talking about academic challenges, let's just go ahead and segue into our topic. And one of those is a new academic challenge for just about everybody. And it has now been coined a term, and it's called COVID learning loss. Now, COVID learning loss to us is new. Summer learning loss was something that we spoke about a lot. So, Doc, just give them an explanation of what is COVID learning loss. Well, it's it's very much like summer learning loss, and it's it's pretty simply that we do not remember what it is that that we've learned. Uh, Academically, we uh, are always building on what we've learned previously in school. Um, and then, of course, that comes to a screeching halt uh, over the summer for most students. Uh, if you have a summer vacation, of course, yeah. um, you know, in a, in a, because this, this is all a conscious process, right? We we tend to grapple and grasp what it is that is right in front of us, and, and we we are very good at figuring out um, what it is that we encounter and, and working with that in a certain way. However, however that might look. But uh, when we have this whole halt uh, in our process, then, you know, we, we, there's, there's some relearning that, that goes on. It's not like riding a bike, uh, necessarily. Uh, to a certain degree, you know, a little bit, um, maybe, uh, mechanistically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but a lot of the concepts are, are simply not retained. Uh, and I think that that says something uh, about our education system in general, that learning loss of any kind occurs at, at any level. But that that's, uh, might be something we get into a little bit later. No, that's I mean, that's a real thing. I can't take a vacation from work for two weeks and come back and remember my password. <laughs> so I understand that learning loss is a real thing. When it comes down to learning loss um, in the COVID world, we're, we're technically talking about basically the time frame that we're living in now, the time frame that started last year when education was kind of turned upside down on its head. Kids didn't know if they were going to be in, in traditional going to school traditionally or going to school virtually. So this is that kind of in a nutshell, right? This is all of that time and what happened between and then and present now and what it is that we have to do to try to combat that, correct? That's right. And as you mentioned, this happens to us in life all the time, right? Right. Um, we, we see something, we get familiar with it, then we don't encounter it for a while. And, and then we re-encounter it, uh, and, and we have to relearn it. Um, and, then, and then immediately we have to build on it. And it usually takes a, a little bit of time for us to, to reacclimate uh, to that thing that we're encountering again. And we usually have to, to make some mistakes uh, along the way once we do, which is which is totally fine and, and natural, um, but learning loss again it itself really speaks uh, to a fundamental flaw in the way in which we go about the learning process as a whole. Uh, usually, in real life, we continue to, to build on things exponentially. Yeah. Uh, but what op- often happens in school is that we, you know we'll take that break from that subject, and then we're reintroduced to it in a different way, or by a different teacher, or under a completely different circumstance, and the student has to. to interact with the material on the terms of the system or of the subject itself without the regards to the ways in which the student might best learn a, a thing for yeah. him or herself. And, and again, that we're even having a, a conversation about learning loss speaks to 
uh, an inherent flaw in how we go about the process of education uh, as is. Right. Have you seen some of maybe your students from Middle Tree who have come in with this same issue? And and what are some of the tips or any any kind of advice that you give to be able to try to combat this? Well, we are seeing learning loss taking place uh, at basically every level with, with almost every student. There are certainly some students who can acclimatize to this uh, with with a, a little bit uh, more adaptability. They have a little bit more coping skills. They're uh, they're they're slightly you know uh, just better equipped in general uh, to deal with it. Uh, ambition, surety has a lot to do with this. And I'm not just talking about maturity that has developed to a certain point that we might call mature, actually, Mm -hmm. because we're seeing actually that a lot of our elementary schoolers, they're just fine with it, right? Right. Uh, The younger, the young kids can can really adapt. And I'm not saying all of them, but but a lot of our younger students, you know, they're they're okay with with doing, you know, things a a little differently because they don't know any better. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But we're they're so excited too, doc. They're They're so excited. I know. You know, look at my cat. Uh, Hey, do you you have a cat? (laughs) Right. right? They're the best. No, let's focus. Two plus two is what again? Yeah. You know, Um, so. Right. Um, But what we're seeing and and not to say that it's not difficult on younger students. Of course. Right. Right. Um, But. But, but I think what we're seeing more, and if I can speak generally about it, yeah. is that we uh, are having a more difficult times with our slightly older students. That is that middle to high school range of folks. And I, I, a, a lot of that has to do with, of course, their, their general environment, that, that sort of malaise that sets in. And has for us all, you know, mm-hmm. given the, the pressured circumstances, right, that COVID has brought on for mm-hmm. us. But a, a lot of that also kind of boils down socially. But the, but if there are certainly some things that we recommend that, that you can yeah. do to, to sort of, if not prevent, because I'm not sure that there is any way to prevent the learning loss, and, and not just with COVID, in the way that we do education, period, learning loss is, is simply a part of that process, unfortunately. Yeah. During COVID, learning loss, absolutely the biggest concern that we have around distance learning. But uh, there are a couple of things that that, that I personally suggest uh, and have been suggested by our staff who work with this every day. So one of those things that we we constantly say is if you can bring concepts to life, Mm -hmm. um, that's really helpful for students. And that's something that academia does not do enough of, you know, can, can you relate what you're doing at home or uh, academics to what you're doing at home? How can you bring that lesson to life for your student? Can you turn something that you're doing in the kitchen into a math problem? Uh, can you have your student write a letter to somebody maybe who needs some more uh, uh, attention right, right. now? Uh, translate the lesson into something that your student sees and does every day. It's a great way to plug uh, some of those learning gaps. Another thing is get your students some safe contact with other people. Do family activities. This might seem like it doesn't have anything to do with actual academia. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you can do structured activities as a family with a pod of other people, 
that you feel comfortable with. Obviously, as long as you're doing it safely, it's it's a great way to help students with their emotional and their social well-being. And that is just as important as anything. And like I just said, with what we are seeing with our older students is that they're lacking that emotional, that social well-being, that kind of support that we as human beings are structured to have some of that and that we are not able to provide that efficiently for that group of people that that fourth society that was just getting used to you know a, a lot of social interactions and some of uh, the things that uh, we go through as adults or we're very familiar about with adults so far as you know it, it, just general social encounters you know middle schoolers high schoolers they're just going through all that stuff yeah. and that was all ripped away from them so if you can do activities as a family with with, with people who again you, you trust that that's going to bring that emotional and that social well-being up just a notch and, and that's going to be really helpful support on a human level for students is absolutely critical yeah. right now yeah it always is and it's always something we, we don't pay enough attention to right uh, in academics or or i mean in general in real life we we're here and we're you know kind of quarantined to our offices and i find myself coming out just to get human interaction so i can understand <laughs> yeah, yeah ab- absolutely it's it's it, it, and again as we've already mentioned Students don't necessarily have the coping skills yeah. because they don't have the experience. That That's what life gives us. It, if nothing else, it at least gives us experience. Now, what we do with that experience, how we digest that for ourselves, that, that's up to us, of course. But but students at a younger age, they, they, they don't know what to do with that or, you know, how to deal with a certain situation because simply they've, they've never dealt with it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, you know, get, getting getting as much interaction on a human level as possible really is beneficial to people. Another thing that we that might be hard for some folks, mm-hmm. have a structure, have a schedule, yeah. make sure that students are doing things at particular times of day. If, if you set expectations and then those expectations are not met, mm-hmm. uh, you, can, you can use that as a marker and say, you know, I, I, we, we wanted to get this done and that done today. We, we didn't do that, so now we have to recalibrate. Yeah. And, and, right? and, then, and that sets it up in a student's mind and in your own mind as a parent uh, that this is the goal, this is what we're striving towards today. Uh, if we have a structure that is uh, it doesn't even have to be so rigid, but but goals, objectives, things that are are going off with some kind of regularity is really, really helpful for people. Yeah, um, yeah. And, it, and it will take pressure off of you as a parent. Um, and then again, set up those expectations for, for students. Yeah. And I'm hearing some of that, too, from our parents um, who have been featured on the podcast. One woman said, you know, when it, it was time to get them virtual, she made a, a full schedule and they get up like they're getting ready to leave. And they do everything that they were supposed to do before, you know, like they had done before, just to make sure there's some structure that it feels like it did before. So. Yep, when you're sitting around in your pajamas all day. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, you know, get in the shower, get dressed, you know, 
eat. I mean, when we're in school in person, all these things happen with some regularity and some amount of structure yeah. is good for all of us. Yeah. Right? Some amount some amount of objectives, goals, uh, things that we're moving towards. That mm-hmm. that is a that's so critical for all of us. And with the stagnation that COVID has, has brought upon us mm-hmm, all mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's really difficult to again get out of that like very sleepy mode that we're all so frequently in right right, so. right. i understand i understand that mm-hmm. i love yeah. it doc i am just <laughs> in love with your explanation of all of this having to get all of this together and making sure that you know people remind themselves to get out and socialize and to be as human as possible safely you know, because we, of course, we want to get back to normal, but but what we're calling this now is the new normal. So I I, I love all the tips for trying to overcome that. Now, now, Doc, if anybody wants to contact you in relation to your mentorship, in relation to Middle Tree, in relation to anything that you have said today, how can they do that? Yeah, they can visit uh, us on the web at middletree.org. Um, uh, of course, uh, uh, you know, we, we work with people across the country uh, doing a variety of things in and around education. Uh, for more uh, on my work personally, uh, people can visit me on the web at josephatman.com. Well, Chalkboard Chat family, again, I have just sat down with Dr. Atman, director of Middle Tree. That's a nonprofit education center based in Claremont, California. He's also a published author. He's written extensively in the field of education, and he is super interested in helping students and their families overcome the pitfalls and difficulties of the education system. Dr. Atman, I thank you once again for joining us here on Chalkboard Chat and you are always welcome back. I so appreciate it, Jermaine. This has been really, really wonderful. So thank you. Yeah, thank you again. And that's Chalkboard Chat. Class is now dismissed. You've been listening to Chalkboard Chat, an MPB education podcast. To hear this episode and more, visit education.mpbonline.org or download the MPB public media app to listen on your iPhone or Android device. This podcast is hosted with love by ACAST.